This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sunday's attack on a gay nightclub in Orlando came a week before gay pride in Denver, which is one of the largest in the country. That event will go on this weekend. We'll speak with an organizer shortly about how they plan to keep people safe. First, there were several vigils in Colorado last night, one at Trax, a gay club in Denver, where three religious leaders spoke. Once again, violence and carnage brought by the deadly combinations of hatred, intolerance, and easy access to weapons of destruction have transformed mothers, fathers, lovers, spouses, relatives, and friends into mourners. We'd like to express our heartfelt condolences to the American people, to the families. And during this holy month for us, the month of Ramadan, let it be known that we stand with those who are oppressed. In our human family today, the GLBT community specifically experienced an enormous loss as a group of people who are too often living in fear and continue to be marginalized and continue to experience discrimination even in the face of progress that's made, today opens a wound. You heard there Reverend Amanda Henderson from the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, Imam Ali of the Northeast Denver Islamic Center, and Rabbi Joe Black of Temple Emmanuel. Also at that vigil last night, Rex Fuller. He's spokesman for the LGBT Center, which organizes Denver's annual gay pride event. And Rex, welcome to the program. Thank you. As we said, Denver Pride will move forward. We'll talk about that shortly. But first, uh, take us into last night's vigil at a nightclub that's really similar in many ways to the one attacked in Orlando. What what sticks with you from that event? This has been such an amazing tragedy and such a an emotional 24 hours. Um, it was especially difficult for us at the center because we had just celebrated on Saturday night our 40th anniversary at a gala at the Sheridan, and we were feeling pretty good. When we be- went to bed on Saturday night and then Sunday morning woke up to this horror and uh, I think what was probably most reassuring to me over the course of Sunday was how so many community groups came together to organize that vigil and put it together and, and worked together. There were representatives from all areas of, of the gay community and then it was – very reassuring that in the afternoon, the Muslim Society of Colorado also uh, hosted a, uh, an event at their Islamic center and spoke up against it also. So despite that it, that it was a terrible event, it was also kind of moving. The theme of this year's Pride event in Denver is building community, according to your website. And I, I want to ask about building community in particular with Colorado's Muslims. Yesterday, a member of the Colorado Muslim Society said Denver's Pride activities should go ahead. And in his words, he said, celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. How, if at all, might this lead to new channels of communication between Colorado's gay community and its Muslim community. I hope that it'll open up um, more opportunities to to share and to understand each other's perspective. And certainly yesterday's event at the Islamic Center was a first step. 
I think that um, all our organizations are looking for ways to work with faith communities across the spectrum and uh, to encourage acceptance of LGBT people. I read several comments from people in attendance at the vigil who wish there had been more room for anger, for rage. And in attendance last night was D.D. DePearson of Denver. I think when there's a mass trauma like this, there are a lot of emotions that come up. And while thinking about love and forgiveness and the grief are all part of that, you know, there's also needs to be a space for sort of the anger that comes with that. And it doesn't mean that you stay there, but to sort of dismiss that as an emotion, I feel like doesn't help people move through sort of a process. There's certainly grief in your voice. Is there anger? Of course there is. And I don't think that... Um, I, I really don't feel that we were dismissive of anger, but I do feel that we have a very large public event to plan and we need to think of safety and we want to encourage calm emotions so that everybody is is safe at that event as much as we can. And I, you know, I appreciate her thoughts, but there, there's a lot of emotions that are going on. There will, there are were other vigils yesterday and there will be others um, coming up this week. And I think there will be chances at Pride Fest to address the full range of emotions. Well, let's talk about Pride Fest uh, this coming weekend in Denver. Uh, talk to me about the decision to move forward with it. It was made pretty quickly. Well, as many people said yesterday, and I think I strongly agree with that, is we're not going to be scared back into the closet. That's really the whole purpose of a gay pride celebration is to be out and to be yourself um, despite people's disapproval. So it, it, everyone agreed that uh, the festival had to go on. There was there was no way to, to not do that. And how will you keep people safe? We've been working very closely with the city of Denver's Office of Emergency Management, the city's Office of Special Events, and with Denver uh, Police Department uh, to coordinate aspects of security. We also have private security um, on site that we hire as part of the festival. And are you beefing up security in any way? We are addressing those um, issues. It's still a developing plan. Uh, we have had a safety plan in place uh, for many years. This that, is not an uncontroversial right. event in its history in, right. in that regard. Right. So we have we have been very aware of safety and been planning for eventualities for many months. Can you speak to any extra steps? Well, one thing that we did this year that was a first time and it, it was good it, it, it was fortunate that we decided to do that is for our staff for the event as well as our volunteers. We did um, active shooter training, how to react in the event of an IED or uh, uh, active shooter on site. So we're preparing for that eventuality. There was some reports of having metal detectors, magnetometers. Is that going to happen? That will not happen. It's a large outdoor festival on a three-acre park. And so there, there will not be metal detectors, but it is a gated festival. It's fenced off and that everyone coming uh, to the festival, uh, uh, their bags are subject to search. We are not allowing weapons on, on the site. Um, and uh, we're also trying now to discourage people from bringing coolers and things like that just to to make it possible for the most 
number of people to get in. We're speaking with Rex Fuller, spokesman for the LGBT Center in Denver, which organizers, organizes Denver's annual gay pride event. Do you think that the event will have a very different tone this year? Yes, I, I don't think there's any way to avoid that. Um, certainly, you were speaking about feelings of anger that people are feeling, and um, there's also some fear and, I think, grief. So that will certainly be part of the mix of emotions at the festival. Do you expect diminished attendance? No, we don't. I actually have uh, been in contact with so many people who say we're more determined than ever now <laughs> to come. Um, also have been in contact with vendors and exhibitors and, and sponsors um, who have sent the same message. We we wouldn't miss it now for anything. Are you in touch with federal law enforcement on this? Not at this time because really that will be coordinated through the Office of Emergency Management at the city. With the city. All right. I want to. Well, and could I also just one, say one sure. thing? We have not received any threats. I think that obviously this was a big, uh, big shock to everybody. Um, and it's relevant to us because we are getting ready for this festival, but we've not received any threats at all. So um, I just want to reflect on something that I read. It came out on Sunday from One Colorado, um, which is an LGBT ag- advocacy group. And um, it said, you know, gay clubs hold a significant place in LGBTQ history. They were often the only safe gathering place. And this horrific attack strikes directly at our sense of safety. More will come as to the shooter's motives, of course. But um, would you say that you feel less safe today, Rex Fuller? Boy, that's a trick question. Um, Unfortunately, in Colorado, we've had many experiences with gun violence and with uh, tragic mass shootings. So if anything, over the last 24 hours working with law enforcement and with this community, I think I might feel more safe because I feel people are taking it seriously and really, um, really addressing it. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. Rex Fuller, spokesman for the GLBT Center of Colorado. Gay Pride in Denver is this weekend in Civic Center Park and culminates in a parade Sunday. Pride activities are also scheduled in Colorado Springs for July 9th and 10th. Organizers there said on Facebook they're working with police to assess threat levels and develop a plan. Another candlelight vigil for Orlando takes place tonight, 8 o'clock at Cheeseman Park in Denver. Here's some of the song Lean On Me sung at last night's vigil at the Tracks Club. Coveted job is open for the first time in 12 years. Denver District Attorney, the current DA, Mitch Morrissey, is term limited. His tenure has included a number of controversial excessive force cases involving officers. That issue has helped define the race to replace him. Well, that and money. CPR's Ben Marcus reports on the most expensive DA's race ever in Denver. 
The first floor of a stately mansion in Capitol Hill is packed with a well-dressed crowd. But this isn't just any cocktail party for the well-heeled. It's an event for Denver District Attorney candidate Beth McCann. Thank you all for coming tonight. This is an incredible turnout. McCann eventually addresses the crowd. She says she was a former deputy district attorney and manager of safety in Denver. Most recently, she's been a state house lawmaker focused on criminal justice issues. Then she gets to the nitty-gritty reality of this campaign. Of course, we're always raising money and needing money. So writing a check, getting friends to write checks, getting husbands, wives to write checks, uh, children, whatever. (laughs) This Democratic primary is likely to decide the next DA in this heavily Democratic city. And this race is already three times as expensive as last time there was a competitive run for the office. $1.5 million total dollars raised so far. I have to tell you, I'm surprised by the amount of money myself. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of money to spend on a race like this. Later, at McCann's home in Congress Park, she says running a citywide campaign is expensive, but donors are excited about the opportunity for change. The current DA, Mitch Morrissey, has been the subject of community scorn for not prosecuting officers who've killed or beat civilians while on duty. We really need some changes in the office. Uh, And this is the time when we have this opportunity to bring someone in who's had a much broader experience and has been doing criminal justice work over the years. Frankly, there isn't a lot policy-wise that separates McCann and her opponents, Michael Kerrigan and Kenneth Boyd. All want to divert nonviolent offenders from lengthy jail sentences. They want to beef up crime prevention and be more transparent about excessive force decisions involving law enforcement. It's their background that distinguishes them. Michael Kerrigan, for instance, is a senior partner at a top corporate law firm in Denver. He says that experience is invaluable. The DA runs what is equivalent to the 10th biggest law firm in the state. 78 lawyers, 125 staff, $23 million budget. Kerrigan was a deputy DA in Denver and is a University of Colorado regent. Kerrigan's connections to the corporate world have helped his fundraising. He's raised more than both of his opponents combined. It's a vote of confidence that I have raised a lot more money than anyone else because people have heard my message of change, having a smarter modern approach to public safety, and they like it. The money is helping him get TV ads like this on the air in the expensive Denver market. Hi, I'm Michael Kerrigan, and my kids wanted to help me show you why I'm running for district attorney. And as far as I could determine, Kerrigan is the only candidate backed by the local version of a super PAC, where just a handful of donors have given nearly $100,000. Money or not, McCann and Kerrigan can run on a change platform because they haven't been in the office for a long time. That's a little harder for Kenneth Boyd, who works in the DA's office now, and he has the endorsement of his soon-to-be former boss. Let me make this absolutely clear. I am my own person. I have my own agenda that I want to, to see moving forward. I have my own policies. Boyd does have a unique idea for handling excessive force cases. He proposes a public fact-finding review modeled on a system in Las Vegas. His opponents say they'll focus on improving communication and relations with the community. Michael Kerrigan and Beth McCann have served in the district attorney's office, but Boyd says there would still be a tremendous learning curve for either if they took office now. Beth has been out of the office for 30 years, and Michael's been out of the office for over 15 years. The way that we prosecute a domestic violence case in 1982 versus all the different things we do in 2016 in terms of the way we engage victims, the way that uh, the services that are provided, it's completely different. 
One thing that isn't different, there will be plenty of scrutiny from community activists like Alex Landau, who himself was the victim of excessive force by Denver police in 2009. He eventually was awarded an $800,000 settlement from the city. He says if the DA doesn't want to hold cops accountable, then he has no qualms about trying to recall anyone in the job. They should not get the idea comfortable in their heads thinking that I will be here for the next 12 years because if we as a community don't want you there, we can work to recall. Landau unsuccessfully worked to recall the current DA, Mitch Morrissey, last year. The winner of the primary on June 28th will face an independent candidate, another deputy DA from the office, in the general election. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. And we'll be right back with a Colorado sociologist who has tracked the progress of children who survived Hurricane Katrina. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, Sierra was 11 years old. She remembers the screams, the rising water, how dark it was at night. Those descriptions are from a new book about children who lived through Katrina. It follows seven of them closely and has new findings about how young people cope in disaster. Co-authors Lori Peake and Alice Fothergill were in graduate school together at Colorado State University. Peake now teaches there and runs CSU's Center for Disaster and Risk Analysis. This book, Children of Katrina, was nominated for a Colorado Book Award this year. And Lori, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. I'll say that uh, Sierra, like the other names in this book, uh, is a pseudonym. You met these children right after the storm, along with about 650 others. What exactly were you trying to figure out by following these children? Alice and I went to New Orleans very soon after Katrina. We received a quick response grant from the University of Colorado and the National Science Foundation. And so we arrived in the Gulf Coast uh, about four weeks after the storm. And we initially wanted to understand and explore what was going on in the immediate aftermath. What did children need during the evacuation, the emergency response period? What was happening with their families and their schooling and their sheltering experiences and so forth? And after that initial field trip to the Gulf, we came back and we wrote a report and we reflected on what we had learned and who we had met. And we really committed and said, we want to follow these children and their families over the long term. And we want to understand how this disaster, which still stands as as the most costly and one of the most deadly in our nation's history, how is this disaster going to unfold in these young people's lives? And that that central question really set in motion what became a, a nearly decade-long study of children's recovery experiences after Hurricane Katrina. Indeed, it's been a huge investment of time. And in a way, um, are, are these children still recovering today? Absolutely. And so we really, as we wrapped up the study and began writing the book, that was definitely something that we had to grapple with as scholars is to really ask ourselves, what is recovery? What does recovery look like after a disaster of this magnitude? And 
can we think of Katrina even as a discrete event? Or is Katrina really now a, a marker in these children's lives that is definitely, it's definitely part of their their collective memory and their experiences. And we really think that for many of the children who are most severely impacted, that this is obviously going to continue to unfold in their lives for many, many, many more years to come and and may even become a generational type of event where these memories are, are passed down across time and space. Give us an example of a child that comes to mind when you think of, and, and I suppose they, they may not be children anymore, uh, you know, some, some 10 years later, but uh, give me an example of a child you follow to who you think we'll be dealing with this into adulthood and, and perhaps generationally. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the children that Alice and I met soon after Katrina, it, we call him Daniel in the book. And Daniel was 12 years old when Katrina happened. And he and his mother and his baby sister ended up in the Superdome for a period of time in New Orleans. And then they were evacuated from the Superdome. And they were in Baton Rouge in a shelter for some period of time. And then they got on a bus and they ended up in New York City and then they came back to New Orleans and then they ended up in California for a period of time and then they came back to Baton Rouge and then back to New Orleans and back to Baton Rouge and so much movement and so much disruption in Daniel's life. Over time, he missed, we calculated somewhere between about two and three years of schooling after the storm where he just simply was not in school because of all of this movement and all of this disruption. And Daniel ultimately did graduate from high school, which there were many moments in there where we didn't know which way his his path was going to go, but he did graduate, but he was 20 years old when he finally graduated high school. And, you know, this is something I actually just saw Daniel last week in New Orleans, and I talked to him for a long time about this and what Katrina has meant in his life and how Katrina is still continuing to unfold. And and he, he really talked about that, about how it affected his education, how it has affected his his memories and his his own ability to find stability in his life and so these children they're they're very aware and very articulate about what katrina has meant and um and so forth in their lives so he's definitely one child that comes to mind but there are many many other stories that that we can share about that and his story is an illustration of something you find in this book which is that so many of the outcomes for these children depend on stable housing. If you don't have stable permanent housing, the question of education, the question of health, um, they're all just so intimately connected. You also wanted to dispel some myths with this book. And the first one really is about children as helpless victims. Uh, It seems that the truth is actually far from that, isn't it? 
Right. So so we do open up the book with some some myths that we think are floating around out there about children in disaster that we really wanted to dispel with this work. And so you're right. One of the myths that we talk about is what we call the helpless victims myth. And this is where children are just cast as completely vulnerable and completely incapable in the face of extreme events. And then we contrast that helpless victims myth with really what seems like the opposite. It is sort of what we call the the resilience myth. And so this is the the idea that children are somehow, you know, just that they will be unaffected by disaster and they're like little red rubber balls that they'll just bounce back no matter what happens Mm -hmm. to them. And of course, the the reality is so much more complex and and dynamic than that. And, And many children, you know, they fall somewhere in between that, they may have some aspects of their lives that are indeed closer to that vulnerability angle, but then also children have many, many capacities. And so that's why when we started with that helpless victims myth, one of the ways that we tried to clear the the slate of that was to really document over time children's capacities. And we write about in the book the ways that children helped other children before, during, and after the disaster, the ways that they helped adults in their lives, Mm -hmm. and also the ways that children help themselves. And we think that's a really important contribution because so often children are overlooked, but they're, they're so capable and there's so much they can do. Very briefly, how did a child help an adult? So one way that children helped adults during the evacuation period, for example, is that children oftentimes became responsible for taking on certain tasks within the household. So they would pack up certain elements that were needed to to go in the evacuation. So they would oftentimes pack their own hurricane go kit. And so they would do things like that during the evacuation for the adults in their lives. Why don't we take a quick break and then rejoin our conversation with Lori Peake, who has co-written Children of Katrina. It is a study, essentially, of more than a decade, looking at the children who survived Hurricane Katrina. Uh, Lori Peake is head of the Center for Disaster and Risk Analysis at Colorado State University. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's rejoin my conversation with Lori Peake. She's a sociologist and is with the Center for Disaster and Risk Analysis at Colorado State University. And with her co-author, Alice Fothergill, she's written Children of Katrina. It sums up a decade of learning um, about how children cope in disaster. And one of the girls that you follow, uh, McKenna, actually ends up in Denver. Her grandmother lived here, and she's still here, I understand. It took her quite a while, though, to adjust. You recorded an interview with McKenna, and I'll say there's another interview happening in the room at the same time, so you may hear a little background noise here. What What were your grades like before the hurricane? My grades were good. My grades were real good. I was on this program called TOPS. You have to have a certain grade point average. And then, you know, when you graduate, they pay for whatever college you want to go to. And then when you came to Colorado, how were your grades once you got here? My grades dropped. My grades dropped. Why do you think that was? 
like the pressure, the stress, like you, the pressure because you know I'm like, all right, I'm in 11th grade, 12th grade, right around the corner. I have to get on my stuff like real quick, and then the stress because I had I couldn't get in touch with any of my friends at first. Then I couldn't get in touch with my two sisters, my brother, and my three nephews. I couldn't get in touch with like some of my real daddy side of family. She said her real daddy there because um, he left the family when she was just a baby. But it, it sounded like she was on such a strong trajectory before Hurricane Katrina and that even for someone who's really dedicated to studying um, and, and doing well, this is just such an unmooring event. What, what would you like to say about McKenna and her adjustment in Denver? Yeah, Ryan, thank you for acknowledging that. And so one of the the things that we write about in Children of Katrina is about this declining trajectory. And for the declining trajectory, these were children and youth who experienced simultaneous and ongoing disruptions in basically all aspects of their lives, in their families, their schooling, their housing, their health and health care, their friendships, extracurricular activities, and so forth. And so many of the children who fit the declining trajectory, they were living very precarious lives before mm-hmm. Katrina happened. And Katrina just accelerated and exacerbated already difficult circumstances. But then you're right, there were children like McKenna who her life was was pretty darn good before Katrina and she was saving for college and and she was in a really good place and had really good friends, really supportive family along the Gulf Coast. And then what Katrina did was revealed essentially unrecognized vulnerability and set her on this declining path because Katrina was just so profound and so disruptive in so many lives. And so McKenna's story, it really, I think the lesson, the central lesson of McKenna's story that we need to remember is that disasters on this scale can disrupt and damage children and families that that aren't necessarily even vulnerable before the storm. And so we, of course, need to attend to those families who are are living in really difficult circumstances, but we also need to pay attention to other children and youth who we may not think are as at risk, but when they experience multiple displacements, when they're in and out of school, when they lose their whole family and peer support networks, all of a sudden children like McKenna can end up on that decline, and that's something we really need to attend to. And so if you could change perhaps one thing about the response to Katrina, and, you know, maybe that's from a a government standpoint or a nonprofit standpoint, I I don't know, what would you change that that most uh, affects outcomes? Oh, that is that's the the billion dollar question, isn't it? So, especially in a disaster like this, where there were so many things that that were disrupted and and that were in need of repair. But I think, given this question, what I might say is that it was the multiple and repetitive displacements that people experienced after Katrina, and that uh, movement that 
we saw among children and families that then led to so many other issues. And so really, if you stop and think about that for a minute, what would it mean if you moved not just one time in a year, but if you moved two or three or four or five times? What does that do for adults' abilities to maintain stable housing, to get a job? What does it do for children's ability to learn, to stay in school, to develop positive and supportive relationships? And so I think if there was one magic lever that I could pull, it would be about trying to keep people as as close to home as possible and to get them into as stable of sheltering and housing situations as possible. Because as you said earlier, everything else really does flow f- from that. We mentioned Sierra in the introduction, who remembers the screaming the night of Katrina, who remembers the rising water levels. Uh, Sierra became quite an artist, writing poetry and songs, which helped in her own recovery. And you had her read a poem aloud that she wrote when she was 13. So that was two years after the storm. And she essentially addresses a bully after finding her voice. Hey, you. Yeah, you. The one in the corner who teased me for being so quiet. Well, listen up. I have something to say. I found the courage to stand up for myself. I found the words to show who I am. I found the voice to speak my thoughts, my fears, my dreams, myself. So you, yeah, you, the one that scared me so quiet, pick up a pen, find who you are, let yourself be free through poetry. Let yourself be free through poetry, she says. If there's a theme to this book, Laurie Peake, it's um, that in the wake of disaster, you can empower children. You can make them feel like they have some some uh, influence over their own lives. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And Sierra is such an interesting case and and such an incredible girl and now young woman. She was 11 years old when Katrina happened. And Sierra fit this pattern that we talk about in the book that we call finding equilibrium. And so she, like many other children who who fit this trajectory, she experienced an initial period of decline and disruption after Katrina. But then she was actually able to attain a new form of stability after the storm that that actually didn't even exist before the storm. She and her mother ended up in some ways in better and more stable circumstances after the disaster. And so you're right, Ryan, she absolutely represents what can happen, the positive rainbow, if you want to say, say that about a disaster, even with all the dark clouds, there can be these silver linings that can open up. And Sierra really represents that because while her family did not have a lot of resources before the storm, after the storm, she and her mother worked together to um, figure out what they needed and forms of support that they needed. They were able to ask for it. They had a lot of what we call in the book advocates in their lives. And so these were 
people who were connected to powerful and functioning institutions like good schools, uh, places that had employment opportunities and housing opportunities. And those advocates were able to help Sierra and her mother to mobilize critical resources that really helped to facilitate Sierra's recovery after the storm. And Ryan, I'll tell you, it was one of the, there were so many memorable moments in the course of doing this research, but Alice and I had the honor of attending Sierra's high school graduation, and we sat in that audience with hundreds of parents, many of them parents to so-called Katrina kids, who watched their children walk across that stage, and we turned to Sierra's mom, and she just had tears rolling down her face as she watched her daughter walk across that stage and accept her high school diploma. And it was such a moving moment. And and she really did find her voice. And it was through adults who really helped her to find that voice and got her the support she needed. So it was a, a, one of the really powerful and uplifting stories that we had the honor to document after that storm. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Sociologist Lori Peake co-wrote Children of Katrina. Peake directs the Center for Disaster and Risk Analysis at CSU. Her book was nominated for a Colorado Book Award, and just last week, it won an award from the American Sociological Association. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Coming up, The Grateful Dead at Red Rocks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Red Rocks was one of the Grateful Dead's favorite venues. The band headlined there 20 times. Their first show at the amphitheater was July 7, 1978. Paul Epstein, owner of Denver's Twist and Shout Records, was a 19-year-old student at DU back then and a fledgling deadhead. He and a friend arrived early and grabbed fifth-row seats. Epstein returned the following night for a concert that many consider one of the band's best shows ever. Wait until that deal come round. Don't you let that deal go down. Oh, no. Now, audience tapes of both shows have long circulated among fans, but high-quality soundboard recordings have just been released, part of a box set of all the band's shows from July 1978. And to Paul Epstein, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Take us back to the summer of 78. How big a deal was it that the Grateful Dead were performing at Red Rocks for the first time? Well, the Grateful Dead had been fairly scarce in our area for a while. We had There had been a show in 77, but before that, it had been a number of years before they had played. And they had never played at Red Rocks. And Red Rocks itself had been kind of... Uh, in a fallow period after the Jethro Tull gas, tear gas incident in the early 70s, it got kind of closed down to rock concerts. And it had just, in I think 76, started to come back as a acceptable uh, a rock, as an acceptable uh, music in Red Rocks. So oh. a lot of the big, big bands had not been playing Red Rocks or the bands that had really come to ascendance in that middle 70s period, had not been playing at Red Rocks. So here we had a confluence of the Grateful Dead on a high right then and Red Rocks being available to rock and roll again. Just very briefly, what happened with Jethro Tull, just just for the context? Well, there were uh, people trying to um, gate crash and the uh, 
probably Denver police, it might have been Morrison police, but some police department used tear gas on them, uh, on the f- people gate crashing. And the show um, had to be stopped uh, during Jethro Tull's set. Ian Anderson started coughing. And incidentally, the next time they played at the Coliseum, he walked out and said, anybody see us last time? It was a gas. And the city banned rock concerts um, basically after the Toll concert for a while and then slowly opened it up to soft rock. Right. Yes. Yes. In 75 and 6, it was really soft rock. And then they started in 77 and 8 doing real rock concerts again. It hardened after a while. Right. right. Was Was it hard to get tickets to that first Grateful Dead show in 78? No. No. Okay. No. Was it full? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I think I, so the Friday night, the 7th, seemed like there was a little bit of room. But the 8th, the Saturday night, which is the one that's getting a lot of attention now, um, was packed. Um, but it was not hard to get tickets. It wasn't this great. There was no Grateful Dead mail order. Uh, there were no second, There was no secondary market for selling tickets. There was no internet, folks, at that point. So, you know, it was it was a pretty... You know, you heard it on the radio and you went that that day or the next day and got tickets and it wasn't that hard. What stands out to you from those first two concerts at Red Rocks? You you recorded them, right? I did. Because the, 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 the dead, they were really known for allowing fans to do that. Yeah, they, yeah. there was no restriction to it. They This is before the days of a dedicated taping section, which they introduced in the 80s. But they were, they looked the other way. In fact, everything was permissible at Red Rocks and I was there all day. And that that was one of the things that stands out to me was the the kind of laissez-faire attitude of the security and um, the promoters and the band, um, they, they hung out all day. You could smell that they were barbecuing backstage, you know, at, you know, right around dinner time. Everybody was like, mm, I'm hungry, you know, <laughs> and, and they, and they were visible, you know, walking around backstage and there was just a very laid back, you know, so that was one thing. The other thing is obviously the magnificent music. It was exceptional, um, by, subjective or objective standards, I believe. Well, let's listen to one of the newly released tracks. This is from the July 8th show, um, Must Have Been the Roses. And he'd laid her head down in the roses She had ribbons, ribbons, ribbons in her long The vocals of Jerry Garcia there. It's the Grateful Dead performing at Red Rocks July 8, 1978. The full concert's just been released for the first time, and we're speaking with Paul Epstein, owner of Twist and Shout Records. He was there that night, and for all 20 of the Dead's performances at Red Rocks. Uh, Bill Kreutzmann, one of the band's two drummers, has said being able to play music at Red Rocks was a privilege, and he called it a mystical setting. Mm. Did you sense that the band was reacting to that setting? Yeah, there was uh, when the first night on Friday when they first walked out on stage, there was a palpable, um, you know, 
this was before the days of high fives, but they were doing everything, you know, but they were, you know, slapping each other on the back and like pointing at the rocks in the audience and clearly psyched. And the audience as well was just thrilled. And there was just a giddy feeling the whole weekend. What was it about the music in particular that you think was a level of, of mastery, I guess? Well, I've spent a good portion of my adult life chasing exactly that question, especially with this band. Um, and there are categories of Grateful Dead concerts. And uh, I think people who've listened to them a lot know, can, can recognize clearly when it is uh, something um, of a different order, a different magnitude. And uh, it's hard to put your finger exactly on what happens. On the eighth show, the Saturday show, the one that's getting all the attention, yeah. there is a a huge amount of energy. Jerry's vocals are um, – there's a kind of emotional quaver to them that he didn't usually have. And his playing is just amazingly fluid and uh, in command. By the late 70s, he was <clears> – <throat> you know, the truth be known, he was starting to become addicted to heroin and he was beginning to falter physically or signs were starting to show. He was starting to go gray. He was starting to look get heavier and look a little older. Um, so he didn't pay, play at peak every night. This show is peak. He is playing with mastery and precision and power as people had known him doing from the 60s onward. I was amused to see that um, one of the songs they played July 8th, their encore, in fact, was Werewolves of London by Warren Zevon. I saw a werewolf of the Chinese and you in his head. Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain He was looking for the place called the Whole Books For to get a big dish of beef chow mein Ah, ooh, well, folks, London I'm so excited to hear that howl from the dead What were your... What were your impressions when you heard that? Well, I knew the song, you know, I knew Warren Zevon, um, but I remember this was, as I said, before the internet. So I had no idea they were playing it. They had only played it probably less than half a dozen times and only that summer. And then they played it a couple more times in their entire career. Uh, it was wild and exciting and hilarious. And Jerry's vocals are nearly maniacal by the end. I mean, he's... Um, he's shrieking it out and the other band members are kind of shrieking back at him and it's it's just one of the most um, uh, overtly fun and overtly uh, expressive Jerry Garcia's I've ever seen. So did you howl back at him? Oh, the whole audience uh -huh. was. And on my audience tape, you can hear at the end of it, they the band comes down and they're just kind of going, ah -hoo, and you can hear the audience going, ah -hoo, back at them. And it's just great. Well, eventually the band became too popular to perform at Red Rocks. They needed bigger venues. Uh, that included the McNichols Arena. Their last concert at Red Rocks was August 13th, 1987. Again, you were there, Paul mm -hmm. Epstein. Did it feel like a swan song? Did you, did you know it would be the last? No. Oh, I see. Okay. <clears throat> no. Um, 
Although, in, if you recall, in 86, Jerry had his diabetic coma. So everything felt so after that felt sort of like a gift because um, it, wa- it wasn't clear that they would ever play again. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, they were uh, in 86. That was the the year he went went down with the coma was the year that Touch of Grey became an enormous hit, 86 and 87. And their the size of their audience changed dramatically, thus making Red Rocks almost impossible. So there was a sense that this was fragile. And, and right after Red Rocks, two days later, they played a couple shows in Telluride where the the environment was even more fragile. And it was like, ooh, these days of these special small shows may be coming to an end. Mm. And it, true enough, they were a state, you know, uh, arena and stadium bound after that. Yeah. But you sensed a fragility. What do you think is the lasting impact of the Red Rocks shows, just briefly? Well, the 78 ones, I do believe, were a turning point in a lot of ways. I think uh, the Dead had already established that they had this traveling audience, people who would follow them around. However, in 78, right after the Red Rock shows, they played Egypt. So <clears throat> there was this vibe that Red Rocks was this unbelievable venue that you have had to see. Then right after that, there was a group of deadheads who literally went to the ends of the earth to see this, this band, the most cosmic place possible. So there was this whole at, G- at Giza. At Giza, oh they my played. Goodness. They played in front of the you know, and that was right after Red Rocks in front of the pyramid. So there was this sense, this overwhelming sense that the dead were worth following. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Paul Epstein, owner of Twist and Shout Records in Denver. By the way, the Dead and Company, which consists of several former Grateful Dead members, will perform at Folsom Field in Boulder, July 2nd and 3rd. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for being with us. I'm Ryan Warner.